Hey, and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today we're doing our end-of-year market update that includes a full wrap of everything that's happened this year in Perth property market, as well as our other capital city property markets. And then we look ahead to our outlook for 2022. Still getting used to saying that number, but I'm not doing it by myself. I've got Tim Lawless, the head of the research division, founder as well of the research division at CoreLogic, one of the absolute gurus of property data and a household name in the property industry. So we're going to be getting stuck into things together and I've had to break this up into a two-part episode because we did get carried away. With no further ado, let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Tim, really thankful to have you on the podcast. Such an honour, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to love getting your insights on the overall market as well as the Perth market and uh, really excited to get stuck into things today. Thanks, Jared, and, and thanks for the invitation uh, to the podcast. Well, lots to talk about. We've had a very interesting year, to say the least, in, uh, in our property markets. Explain to me a bit about uh, RP Data and CoreLogic and how you guys kind of fit into the industry for those that don't know, I mean, you're a household name to me, and uh, which is a real privilege to have you here. But give us a bit of background before we dive in. Sure. So RP Data is uh, is one of CoreLogic's products. It used to be the name of the company as well until we we got acquired by CoreLogic, which is a global business uh, based in the US. Uh, anyway, apart from the, the company structure itself. Essentially, we're, we're a property and analytics company. So we collect data on property, be it residential or commercial. Um, that sort of data tends to be um, things like how much does a home sell for? What, what sort of property is it? Is it a house or is it a unit? What sort of attributes does it have? What was the marketing history behind the property uh, when it was on the market? Uh, how long did it take to sell? Was it auctioned or a private treaty? Uh, and then we blend all that data with a whole bunch of other information, be it uh, information about the geography, the elevation of the property, what sort of aspect it might have. Is it on a major road or a quiet road? Uh, what sort of um, uh, ground cover is around it? And the reason we collect all this all this uh, information, apart from the fact that it's really interesting, of course, is to, uh, is to value properties. So we, we have uh, automated valuation algorithms and uh, we, we try to estimate the value of every property across the country uh, on a daily basis. And most of our clients tend to be banks, uh, valuers, brokers, governments, real estate agents, that type of thing. Any industry or any business that has some relationship with the property sector would, would be a client or, or at least a prospect for, for, for us. So uh, it's quite a broad-based market, and uh, we've been around for a long time. RP Data itself was started, would have been back at about 2003, 2004, and we floated on the Australian Stock Exchange uh, in 2006, 
And then we became a core logic company from memory. It would have been about 2011, I think, uh, and have been so ever since. Fabulous. And um, one of your sort of key things that you publish and keep track of is a hedonic index. Explain that to us. Yeah, so we have a, a lot of different methodologies to, to measure housing values. Um, the hedonic index is one of our index-based methodologies. Uh, so this, in terms of measuring the trajectory of housing values, you can, you can have a, a, a really simplistic methodology, like a simple median, for example, that just looks at the middle of the, uh, so say if you have 100 transactions, the, the, the median would be the 50th uh, percentile or the 50th transaction. Uh, really simple method, but um, it can be really compositionally skewed depending on mm. who's active in the market. You take a step up from there, you can go to... Especially when we're looking over the shorter term, isn't it? It's like yeah, in a absolutely. single month when you're trying to report on how a suburb has performed and even the Perth-wide look at things, it can be very skewed. So. And it can be very volatile as well. So a step up from a, a simple median would be a stratified median, and then you can go to a repeat sales index. And at the other end of the sort of sophistication spectrum, you have a hedonic regression index. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mouthful. All it simply means is we're trying to estimate the value of property rather than the price at which a property is selling at. So we, we estimate the value across the entire housing portfolio rather than just those properties that have transacted over the most recent month or, or quarter. Okay. And the benefit of doing that is, uh, for starters, you have a much larger sample size, so uh, reduced, reduced volatility, but you also avoid a lot of the compositional biases you'll find in other metrics. So uh, because you're, you're estimating the value of every property across the market, it doesn't see uh, necessarily see an impact from, say, a lot of first home buyer activity that might be pushing up prices down the bottom end. Uh, or that, that, that type of thing. So it tends to be a much more um, accurate reflection of true value changes rather than price changes over time. Hmm. So when you report on your changes in median house price, are you using a hedonic sort of index for that or is it typically based on something else? Yeah, it's pretty rare that we'd report on a median house price these days. Uh, you know, the, the last 10 years or so, we've really seen You've property market analytics has, uh, yeah, has really, have really improved. So typically, if we're reporting on, on a value change, we will be relying on our hedonic index. But underlying that, that index, of course, are all the individual valuation estimates. So looking at the median of those valuation estimates or a median value rather than a median price gives you a pretty good understanding of the of the value shifts across the market in dollar terms rather than, you know, an index is really useful for measuring percentage change, but you really want that dollar value context. So mm-hmm. rebasing the index of the current median value, for example, gives you a pretty good idea of what the dollar value shift is going to be across the market. So just, just to use, a, I guess, a, a practical comp- comparison here, we know that over the past 12 months, for example, Perth housing values have increased by about 16%, but in dollar value terms, that equates to about an increase of about $74,000, right? So when you start talking dollars, it gives, it gives most people a, a much more intuitive feel for how the, house, how the housing market is changing. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I'm seeing here when we just look at REWA's straight median house price sort of blanket level uh, approach it more looks like um, we've changed from 490 to 520 over the last um, year so a thirty thousand dollar increase but 
anyone on the ground would know that that doesn't feel right, like it, it's been larger. But I certainly appreciate your approach and how it can give us a more accurate feel for what's, what's happening. So why was uh, Perth showing lower than actual growth on your index for a while there? Because for those of us that do follow the index here in Perth, we were kicking ourselves as to, you know, what's going on? Like, why is it not showing up as much as we thought for a while? And then it kind of just jumped up. And I think um, there might have been some reason behind that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, um, In early August, we realised there was an issue with our WA index. And at the time, we uh, we pulled the index from the marketplace for, for a month and a half or so. So we, we were transparent about it, obviously. Um, mm. Accuracy is really important to us and, uh, and so is taking ownership. So we, we, we reported to the marketplace that there was an issue with the index. We pulled it because we have a daily index as well that a lot of people would, would follow to, to give you a bit of a feel for where their month's going to end up and what the intramonth changes are looking like. So we pulled that index as well. And uh, obviously behind the scenes, we're working madly to, to get the index back up and running. But uh, it turned out to be quite a complex task so just to, to give you a bit of a, to explain the issue, I probably should provide a bit of context on how the index yeah, works. So the hedonic index really relies on attribute data. So what I mean by that is how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, the land area of a property, uh, that type of thing. So uh, what we found was the cause of this issue that we uncovered in, in August was the attribute data in Western Australia had, for a few reasons, become really volatile. Uh, we were seeing, uh, say, for example, a three-bedroom, two-bedroom house was reported as selling for, say, $500,000. And then a few weeks later, those attributes might change to become a, uh, a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house, for example, which, of course, for our index, which is really sensitive to attribute data, was causing some havoc. And uh, as, a, as the index revised the beginning of the month um, uh, median value, it would then calculate a lower growth rate. So long story short, we, we realized what was happening. We had to go and find out why the attribute data was becoming volatile. It turned out to be a particular source of the data, which, uh, which we fixed, and then reapplied um, mm. uh, the right set of data to the back series, re-released the index. And the net result of that was that we boosted or we have the, the, uh, the annual change in the Perth Housing Value Index increased by around about eight percentage points, right? So it wasn't mm, big uh, it surely yes. wouldn't decry- describe it as immaterial. But uh, yeah, very glad to see that we had we have the index back on track. Yeah, one of the ways we uncovered that that issue was we, um, as I mentioned earlier, we have our hedonic index, but we also have a stratified median, a simple median, a median value index, or a peak sales index. We, we noticed the issue because the hedonic index had started to diverge from those other measures. Okay. So it set off a few alarm bells and uh, uh, we had it back up and running in about a month and a half or so. But since that time... And yeah, what have we seen since to the, yeah, to the index? Time, and Things have started to quieten off a little bit, it seems. So we've mm-hmm. seen the annual rate of growth has started to drift a little bit lower. Uh, coming into the end of October, we actually reported uh, you know, yeah, virtually it was minus, minus 0. 0.1, wasn't it? Yeah, it was down 0.1%. So for all intents and purposes, it was a flat result for, for Perth, which I think uh, caught a few people by surprise. And mm. uh, talking to a lot of people on the ground, it does seem to be quite a mixed view on what's how the housing market is performing in WA, but it seems to be very much a diverse outcome. A, a very diverse outcome. At one end of the spectrum, you've got the really high-end market like the Cottesloes and 
Peppermint Groves and Del Kids. Yeah, western suburbs. Yeah. yeah, the western suburbs and some of the inner city areas showing very strong growth rates, but a much quieter market once you get into, say, the first home buyer areas uh, mm. far north around Wanneroo. We're getting down south around Mandurah. We seem to be slowing down once again as well. So it looks like the market has really started to become quite diverse, which uh, I think overall is showing up as a relatively flat growth rate. But uh, below the headlines, you can see there is quite a bit of quite a bit of diversity across the market. And was there any sort of top performing suburbs or areas over the last year that stuck out to you? Do you keep indexes at the individual suburb level or does yeah, it not? Absolutely. So we, we publish our data across um, a whole range of geographies from you know, national and state and yeah, all the way down to suburb or postcode or council level. So I'm just looking at the SA3 level data. So an SA3 or a statistical area three is, is a pretty small sub-region across uh, across the capital cities and rest of state markets. So it gives you a pretty good feel for what, uh, what's happening below the surface. For example, Perth is, um, is, is subdivided or divided into about 21 SA3 regions. So looking through that data, you can see the very top of the list in terms of the strongest market over the past 12 months has been Perth City. So that includes suburbs like East Perth up to North, North Perth. It includes um, Subiaco, Shenton Park. Those sort of suburbs and values there are up about 19% over the year. Then you've got markets like Cottesloe up 17%. Uh, Fremantle is up 17% as well. Um, and then getting down to the bottom of the list, you've got your much more affordable and outerlying areas. So Armadale was uh, was down the bottom of the list. With the values are up about 9.6% over the 12 months to October there. You've got Mundaring, 2.2%. Wanneroo, uh, sorry, 10.2%, uh, Wanneroo up 10.9%. So you can see there is quite a range, but when you start looking at the monthly and the quarterly data, you know, Mundaring, for example, we had down 2% over the uh, the three months ending October, whereas if you look at somewhere like Cottesloe, it was up about 2% over the quarter. So yeah, okay. yeah definitely a, quite, a, quite a diverse outcome. And we're starting to see that more and more across the other capital cities as well as... Um, I guess they're more affordability probably driven now than Perth is and we represent certainly a lot more value. But I feel like we've got a problem with our confidence, if you will, like the other cities have come off of their good markets over the last three to five years and they they know what growth is and they haven't... uh, We're coming off of uh, a lot lot more difficult times and it's it's almost hard to get the, the belief again and that's what I'm feeling on the ground anyway. Uh, absolutely. I mean, interesting enough, even though Perth has seen a pretty solid rate of growth, uh, values up 15, 16% of the past 12 months, just look back historically, as you say, Jared, it's been through some, some pretty rough patches. We're actually still seeing on our index, uh, values are about 2.5% two, two below where they were in 2014. Okay. So the market hasn't quite posted a technical or a nominal recovery just yet, although I think we'll probably get there by the end of the year. Uh, most of that is due to the unit market. So units mm. be a much weaker outcome and unit values, despite the fact that they're up about 11% over the year, they're still down about 14.5% from yeah. the 2013 peak. I'm seeing a lot more activity in the unit market, which is taking up some of the supply that is has built up. But we've also got a lot of supply off market in people that would sell if they could sell for the price that they want. And as you mentioned, if if the unit market's still down on its index, we're not 
a lot of the discussions I'm having with people, it still doesn't work for them to sell. So I think as we, there's a lot of pent up people that keep coming on every time the prices start coming back that keeps the supply up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the, the biggest disincentives for, for vendors in Perth is the fact that, uh, you know, particularly in the unit sector, some of them will still be selling in a negative equity situation or uh, selling for less than what they purchased the property for. Um, I don't think there's going to be an issue for too much longer, particularly for houses, especially those in the high end of yeah. the marketplace. But uh, for some for some of those buyers that bought right around the peak, so sort of 2014, 2013, uh, there is still going to be some element of, of neg- negative equity in the market. And I guess we'll get to other factors in, like the borders opening and other things later, but um, I imagine the unit market might be benefited most from from those potential immigrants and that are used to higher density and uh, often either rent or, or buy as close to the CBD as, as they can, not necessarily knowing the lifestyle and and uh, backyards that we have here in favour. <laughs> it's Isn't it fascinating? You know, Perth being it's Australia's fourth largest city, but it's, it's one of the major capitals that hasn't really densified very mm. much at all. It's been kind of like an LA style urban sprawl of going north and south, whereas apartments or even townhomes and units are still a really small proportion of the overall dwelling stock across Perth. In terms of supply, like my numbers are showing that we're still very tight. And when we look at the demand side of that equation too, in terms of how much many are getting sold each month, we're on par with like February, March, autumn, when we usually have our other peak time of the year. So autumn and spring are usually our highest selling times as probably for the other capitals in Australia. So sort of fundamentally, when I look at the state of things, everything's very tight and there's still a lot of buyers purchasing. So is that what you're seeing on your side? Yeah, we are seeing listing numbers have started to lift quite quickly across Perth. So the number of new listings coming in the market uh, so let me backtrack. There's there's probably two ways to, to look at um, advertised supply. You've got your fresh supply coming into the market, so that's the flow, how many new listings are being added, and then you've got your overall active listing numbers, right, which is how many homes are available to, to purchase at any particular point in time. So the new listings trend is really ramping up now, as it does okay. at this time of the year, every year. To, to your point, it's very seasonal. So we're seeing over the past four weeks up to the end of November, about 5,000 new listings were added to the Perth market on our numbers. Is it coming on late? Because that's what it feels like to me. A bit of a late start to spring, do you mean? Oh, yeah. Like I feel like we're going to carry across Christmas far more than we've ever done. And I think part of that's the vendor psychology of, oh, if people can't go on holidays and, and I've finally got around to putting my property on market, let's still launch and I'm having a lot of those discussions that are probably going to come on first and second week of December when normally we'd be like, let's wait till mid, mid-January. mid Yeah, absolutely. So so the number, the new listing numbers are about 35% above the same time last year. Last year was a funny year because of all the uh, disruption from COVID. But they're about 14% above the five-year average for this time of the year as well. So to your point, a bit of a late start, but it looks like vendors are pretty pretty keen to test the marketplace at the moment. And also to your point about tightness, even though we've seen this, this pretty substantial lift in fresh stock hitting the marketplace, it does seem to be getting absorbed relatively quickly. So demand remains pretty strong. Overall, the total number of listings across Perth, so the amount of stock to choose from, is still about 24% below the five-year average. 
So even though we're seeing the surge in new listings coming on, to, uh, I think you're right, buyer demand is keeping pace and it's keeping that overall supply level quite tight. Um, homes are taking a little bit longer to sell, it seems, but still in like 20, 21, 22 days to sell on yeah, average. Still, still very tight. And who's driving this market? Because you have access to probably a lot more stats than than I would have. What are you seeing as far as homeowners, investors, first-time buyers, and and is there likely to be a change in that head or not? So one of the one of the challenges in property data is that it doesn't really tell you who it is buying the property. We know a lot about the property itself, but not actually who's who's buying and selling. So we need to look at to, we need to look towards other data sets to get a feel for. Um, that this the market sectors that are most active, and one of the best data sets would be mortgage-related data that breaks it down into say, uh, is it investors, is it first home buyers, is it non-first home buyers? So we can see at the moment investors are really starting to to step up across WA. So um, uh, from from a really low base though, so investors mm-hmm. at the moment are about twenty-one percent of mortgage demands across the state. But uh, back in say October last year. Investors were only about 13 to 14% of mortgage yeah. demand, extremely low. And that was after a really long period where investment activity was consistently winding down from sort of 2014. Mm. Now, back in 2014, investors were nearly 40% of mortgage demand across, yeah. across WA. So now they're 21%, so about half of what they used to be when the market was really uh, humming along really back hot. in 2014. Yeah. But first home buyers are a diminishing component of the market. So first home buyers, again, on the finance data, are about a third of owner-occupier demand, which is pretty much bang on the 10-year average. But go back to, say, late last year, first home buyers were nearly 45% of owner-occupier demand. So mm. it looks like you know the fact that a lot of incentives have expired, that affordability is becoming a bit more challenging as well. Is putting a lot of downwards pressure on the level of first home buyer activity, but the biggest yeah. sector of the marketplace is still uh, that, that upgrader slash downsizer segment of the market. So mm. non-first home buyer owner occupiers, and I guess uh, they come in with a bit more money and depth behind them with what they can pay for things as well when they find the right place, and and yeah. uh, they're probably buying for the right reasons. And if they need, if they want to upgrade and move into an area they're going to stay there for five or ten years whereas you know they're not speculating and we really need that solid base to drive any market don't we absolutely and uh you know a, a lot of the time that that particular segment of the marketplace uh, has a bit of equity accrued behind them uh, unless they're, they're bought right at the peak of the marketplace mm. um they're also less sensitive to affordability pressures as well we know first home buyers are really finding the biggest challenge of getting into the marketplace regardless of where they are is saving up a 20% deposit, funding transactional costs and stuff like that. So mm. at least and in I WA. I guess it's made harder with the rents going up and there's probably many tenants that would love to get out of renting. And we've had, you know, very strong rental price increases, which we'll touch on in a minute. In a minute. But um, even if it, it does make saving for that deposit harder now because we've, we've had the increases in what they have to pay for rent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Along with that, um, they're not they're not getting much interest on their savings as mm. well. So uh, higher rental costs, less interest uh, accrual on on your savings, and uh, of course, household savings did surge through the worst of COVID, but that's coming down. It's normalising again now as well. So, yeah, I think for first home buyers, it's probably going to be one of the uh, you know we're moving moving into a federal election probably March or April next year. 
I think home ownership and first home buyers are going to be a hotly contested platform across the two major parties. So it'll be interesting to see how they uh, how they play that one out. So any other insights into what might drive the market in the year ahead? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, obviously. So some I, of the- I often say to our clients, the more you know about the moving parts uh, and the complexity, the harder it is to um, say for certain what's gonna, what's going to happen. That is so true. And analysis paralysis, I think, is a real thing. But uh, <laughs> there are a lot of moving parts. You've got interest rates are just edging a bit higher now. You've got um, the fact that a lot of the stimulus that was previously available has expired or or been watered down. Uh, you've got listing numbers are starting to push a bit higher. But there's also some tailwinds as well. You know, we expect state borders will start to become a little bit more open. I know WA, mm. that's been one of the biggest challenges is such a tight state border. It's probably interrupted this, the interstate migration trend to some extent. Yeah. Your migration from overseas should start. And how do we even begin to predict what that flow between the states might look like? Give someone a gold medal if they can do that with any accuracy. Yeah, well, hopefully it picks up where it left off. You know, WA was on quite the uh, quite the spectacular interstate migration trend leading into COVID, mm. partly driven by stronger economic conditions in the mining sector, uh, once again improving, but also a lot of people attracted to the very affordable housing prices. Yeah, as well. So the job situation still looking very yeah, jobs looking good, very good, and I'm uh, having to recruit at the moment, and it's uh, very challenging out there for employers. So that's the other flip side of booming economy makes it very difficult for uh, businesses to find the right people. Yeah, but one of the wild cards is still, you know, the WA economy is quite intrinsically yes. linked with commodities and resources and so forth. So we know there's a lot of uncertainty there. Iron ore has been doing fantastically, but uh, some of the trade tensions with China, for example, uh, you know, could be yes, one of the downside risks. I just checked in on the iron ore price yesterday because it's one of the things I've started reporting to our listeners on because so much it's a good barometer to if the Chinese and other Southeast Asian countries are taking a lot of our iron ore, pushing the price up, then they're often there's lots of other flow-on benefits of that, and especially when it's such a high percent of our gross domestic product in WA. And you'd, you'd have to argue that the whole of Australia is pretty uh, reliant to some <laughs> degree on uh, on how our exports go. But obviously with uh, Evan Grand and the, the failing of some of the property developers over there, do you have any insight as to how this might flow on to WA or is, is that sort of beyond your scope? <laughs> it, it, is, it is a bit of, a bit beyond my, my remit, I think, and uh, there's, there's people that specialise in that as a full-time job. Yeah. So I'd probably defer to them, but uh, but clearly there is a bit of downside risk there. And mm. uh, you know I mean, over uh, the years, I've I've more just stuck to what I can see and what uh, what are the trends and and giving people that. But I think the further I go into this, I, I'm I can't help but uh, be more curious about what's going on there in China and the the likely impact. But I'm no economist either, um, so <laughs> I think um, one thing is. For certain that the other economies around the world are also needing to continue their recoveries and it's hard to know how much they may pick up where China leaves off and it's also hard to know what sort of policy changes and things China might do to counter their slowdown and whether that will be successful. So those are some of the variables I've seen. 
Yeah, in addition to that, no doubt, uh, you know, some of the iron, iron ore miners are very smart people and uh, they'll be looking for alternative markets as well, just, mm. just like we are with coal in, in, in northwestern Queensland as well, uh, looking for other options and opportunities. Same with the winemakers. So, yeah, there's always going to be other other players out there, but uh, um, uncertainty is always going to be one of the factors, I think, that uh, that plays out. Well, Tim, thanks for joining me for part one of this two-parter. We've got so much else to cover. I'm going to have to have you back to continue where we'll be chatting about how did the banks go with their predictions for this year and how did they differ? What are the banks expecting for the market ahead in 2023? And to go deeper into the rental market side and how this feeds back around to influence the sale market be making some some comparisons with the other capitals and also seeing how Perth fits into that mix and I guess at a national level what investors might be looking at as far as Perth goes and then we're going to bring things together in a really nice bow of how we see things, what's our outlook ahead and take you right inside all that data and insights. So join us in part two next week. If you haven't already given us a review on iTunes, that would really help us get found. And I wanted to do a special mention of our Facebook group, which is called Perth Property Investment. We've got probably close to a 1,000 members in there. It'd be great if you can get along and join the conversations in between our episodes. So catch you on the next one. (music) 